0: Look, I'm about to tell you something you probably already know, but I want you to stick with me. Rest, you know, the act of slowing the motors, decreasing the daily surge, shutting down the auxiliary machinery of our bodies and brains, is so important. For many of us, it's the only way to get a reprieve from the relentless stress we regularly endure. So yes, when you haven't gotten your recommended seven to nine hours of sleep at night, you wake up more sluggish and irritated than you otherwise would. Your body can actually feel heavy, and your brain just doesn't work as well as it could. The worst, of course, when a coworker or a friend or your mom says something like, Wow, you look tired. Ugh. But here's the thing most of us don't actually notice how crucial being rested is until we're deprived of it. And even then, we're probably still undervaluing how inadequate rest really affects us personally, especially our brains. Did you know that even simply the process of getting ready for bed, turning off the lights, setting the phone aside, crawling into the sheets, even that alone changes our brains, we begin the process of slowing down. What's going
1: on in the brain in in layman's terms is essentially our brain is getting a chance to not be consciously engaged in task switching all day long. And our cognitive function is going to improve as a result and you'll, you'll feel better the next day because our brain cells are having a chance to rest and regenerate and replenish.
0: That's Professor Victoria Garfield talking about how critical rest is to our overall health. But again, you kind of already knew that. The question is, is a good night's sleep the only meaningful way of resting your brain? How else might you give your brain a break?
1: We found a a very clear effect of habitual daytime napping. So having a regular daytime nap... ...on the total size of the brain, so what we call total brain volume, as captured with a brain scan.
0: I have never been a napper. I'm going to get that out of the way right now. I can probably count on one hand the number of times I have actually napped. But i got to tell you, I felt pretty darn good every time I did. It was almost like I was cheating a little. And the idea that napping could actually change the size of my brain like the professor just said, well, that was pretty amazing. A little secret siesta, doing all that. Again, I get it, I do. Life is busy, and it's easy to think of naps as optional. And when I was thinking about this episode of the podcast, I was thinking we were going to focus on all the amazing things happening in your brain, this fire show of activity when you cycle through the stages of sleep. But the thing is this, after the conversation you're about to hear, you may rethink the idea of working through lunch. I know that I have definitely already recalibrated my own attitude about napping. So on today's episode, we're going to explore naps and the rested brain. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Victoria Garfield is a senior research fellow at the Medical Research Council Unit for Lifelong Health and Aging and a professor at University College London.
1: One of my primary interests for the last 10 years has been around understanding why we need to sleep properly, why sleep is so important for um, the brain and the body, especially as we get older.
0: H- how would you define a well-rested brain?
1: The, the things that we always say to people are, you know, the, 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 the standard things, like you, you want to be sleeping for seven to nine hours a night on average. That's half the battle won. And that really comes from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, and they've been saying this for a long time now. Um, the other thing is quality of sleep. So it might be that you um, you don't sleep for quite, say, seven to eight hours. You sleep for, say, six and a half. But the quality of sleep you're getting is good. So that is good, and and that will help your your brain replenish and then the other thing to think about that we that a lot of us don't do that helps your brain cells kind of recoup is to go to bed and go to sleep and wake up at the same time seven days a week, which, again, is difficult. A lot of us don't do it because um, there's you know fun things to be doing out there in, in, in society.
0: <laughs> I have to say that um You're quite right that people may often bemoan the idea of finding seven hours at least to sleep every night. Um, And look, I I was one of those people as well, uh, wrongly, as it turns out, believing that I could get by on far less. Uh, I'm a busy guy. I have three teenagers. I have jobs, you know, all that. And I, I get it done now, you know. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, look, just and I say this as a TV guy, but turning off the TV and not watching TV in bed, uh, all those things that sort of suck up your time that seem like they're giving you more benefit than just mm. going to sleep. It, it, it doesn't pan out now, I'm telling you, as a guy in his early 50s. So it's, it's really important. And I think I think people are are starting to more fundamentally understand that. But you know, uh, Professor, my, my trying to understand when you are actually well rested. Like, what are the hallmarks of that? Right. For me, um, I find that I'm. I, I can focus better. Mm. I'm less likely to become snappy, you know, or, or, or short uh, in terms of conversations. The other way that I was describing it recently to a friend of mine who's also a psychologist was that every day we, we have these challenges in our life and on some days, they feel like those challenges are going to crush us. We're just going to be crushed by it. And on other days, it feels like, hey, it's a good workout. I don't know. That's just me. Mm. But aside from the things that we can do to get good sleep, how do you know, for example, when you are well rested? Just in your, you know, just your life. How do you know?
1: Very, very similar to the stuff you've just described for me. Um, I'm probably not as as busy as you because I'm not on the telly. Um, but I'm quite busy, um, you know, with Family stuff and and work and students and you know being a researcher, uh, you've got to do lots of different things. Your brain has to engage in this task switching constantly when you when you're an academic. Um, you know, just today, for example, um, I had to look through someone's thesis and comment, and then prepare for this interview, um, and also get some exercise, and also call my mum. So you know, your brain is. Is constantly, you know, switching between all these different things. And when when we finish later, I have to finish writing a publication. So it for me, I think you're absolutely right that you you just know when you're not sleeping well. You know. Firstly, uh, my friends are very honest and will say to me, You look really tired today, or this week, you look you look really <laughs> Always tired. I love
0: hearing that, yeah, right?
1: <laughs> exactly. And you know, they'll say, You look really tired, are you okay? Um and while that might be be offensive to some people. I don't take offence to it because it mm. I know that maybe I've had a bad week and I've not slept as well and, and people can tell. Um I think that there are there are lots of things that that you know show and for me I, I can be quite snappy if I have not rested well. Mm. There's great when we realize, okay, we can, we should be doing it as much as we can. But for people who maybe still can't, life is just a bit too difficult at the moment or they're too busy. Um, It's important to remember there are lots of other things that interact with that as well. Um, So, you know, other lifestyle modifications that, you know, if you're not sleeping as well, but you're having a really healthy lunch every day uh, or you're able to fit in a bit of exercise, that will still, still really, really benefit your brain. Um, it's not going to make up for years of bad sleep, but it w- it
0: will still help. Do you track your sleep in any way? Do you wear devices or anything to give you a, an idea?
1: I haven't done it other than when I took part in a study um, back mm. in November for some colleagues, um, and I wore a, an actigraph, a, a wrist worn actigraph, and I had to keep keep a sleep diary. And I'll I will confess, I'm I'm quite honest. I wasn't very good at the sleep diary. Um, I did it, I completed it, but I, I, in the morning I go, right. So what did I, Oh, oh God. And then it really made me think, <laughs> Oh God, the quality of some of this data is, is quite problematic to be honest. Mm. Um, and I did feed that back to them as well. Uh, you know, as somebody who's obviously in the field. So no, I don't, I don't track my sleep. Um, I do go to sleep, go to bed. I should say at the same time, roughly every week night, I don't do that at the weekend. Um, so I roughly know how many hours I sleep, and like I say, I know when I've when I've not had a good night's sleep. And I think probably my mum is the one who gets the worst of it because she phones me and and then she says, "Oh, you haven't slept well. You, you've got something going on. You're 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 a bit snappy." And in, in, one, in one of your moods, she says to me, <laughs> "You,
0: you got to love moms, and look, you know you, you appreciate the candor, right? <laughs> With all things considered." Absolutely. I, I have to tell you that. Um, I I do track my sleep. I you know and and mm-hmm. it's, I'm I'm sort of a data guy and I just do it off of my watch. So you know, what is interesting to me is I did find some insights. For example, um, even a very small amount of alcohol, like a, a little bit of wine or something, that really throws off my sleep. And yep. you know I, I and I thought okay, well this is just a tiny amount with dinner, not a big deal. Um, it, the insights are interesting, I think, you know, for people to do. I don't know, as you say, how good the data is to look at large populations. But for an individual, I, I did find it helpful. And I also found it motivating to 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 not do things that were interfering with my sleep and to emphasize things that improve my sleep.
1: Mm. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. When, and it's a difficult one, I think, again, because with all of this stuff, we want to get the balance right. So if you're if you're somebody who is quite, you know, you, you're you quite into data, um, and I am for my work, um, I don't do that kind of stuff in my personal life, probably just because I'm a bit too lazy, if I'm honest, um, to, to, to look at how I'm sleeping and what have you. But may, maybe after this I'll, I'll start doing it. Um, I think that one thing that I think is really important to think about, though, for people is that um, that balance between not obsessing and creating anxiety mm. and that, again, Absolutely. We know alcohol it has you know negative effects on the brain and yeah. the body. We've shown quite recently, um, some colleagues have shown that any uh, amount of alcohol is not good for you. We all know this. Um, however, a lot of us still consume alcohol. Um, and here in the UK, there's a very, very big culture of uh, pubs and alcohol consumption. So again, I think it's an individual thing Sanjay. i think that yeah. you know if you can take that data and make those small changes and 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 it's not going to make you anxious or obsessive fine but if we're then going to be causing us ourselves other problems or you know mental health issues then i think pe- people need to be careful with those things
0: Yeah, I I think that's a really good point. And I try not to be obsessive about it. Um, Everybody's going to be their own, sort of take it in their own way. But I, I do find it somewhat helpful for me, just in the same way that I might track my activity and things like that. Sometimes there's insights. You know, Professor, I think one of the issues, it seems, with sleep is that people see it as sort of, Um, not necessarily wasted time, but time when nothing is happening, right? And I could use that time for something else. How how do you describe to a lay audience just the benefit of sleep? I mean, what is happening in our brains when we sleep?
1: Well, I mean, firstly, we know from decades of epidemiological evidence and now some experimental evidence and some causal studies that not sleeping sufficiently – so, or sleeping for too long and not getting good quality sleep is associated really strongly with increased risk of nasty things like diabetes, high blood pressure, having a heart attack, dementia, getting a sleep apnea diagnosis. You know, lots and lots of things that anxiety, depression. It's a, it's quite a long list of things. So I think um, that those things don't, should be enough to put people off. You know, and 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 really think that you know they need to think consider their sleep properly and, and think about it a bit more. When we go to sleep, our brains are not completely switched off, of course. That never happens, and we know that we, we dream. Um, some of us remember our dreams and, and others don't. I don't really know what the hell I'm, I'm dreaming about, to be honest. Um, but what's going on in the brain, in, in, in layman's terms, is essentially our brain is getting a chance to not be consciously engaged in those tasks that I was talking about earlier and task switching all day long. And our cognitive function is gonna improve as a result and you'll, you'll feel better the next day because our brain cells are having a chance to rest and regenerate and replenish. We know this from MRI studies and lots of lab lab work over the decades that it is important to just give your brain that rest. It's 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 a fallacy That sleeping for four hours and then, you know, getting up earlier and being a person who starts work at 3, 4, 5 a.m. when you don't need to or you're not paid for it, that's not going to make you more productive. And it's not going to make you, you know, be in a good mood and feel nice and be nice to your your co-workers and your parents and your family members and friends. It's not going to work. You mentioned earlier TVs in bedrooms. Um, I don't have a TV in my bedroom, never have done. Hmm. But again, it's another form of rest. Even if you just go to bed and you're just not doing anything before you sleep, it your brain is just is, is benefiting from all of that. And and the rest of
0: your body as well, of course. Poor sleep leading to diabetes, leading to hypertension, heart disease. What's the connection there?
1: So this is a very difficult question. There's two two parts. One, the epidemiological data, where we do large-scale observational studies. They show that, for example, people who don't sleep sufficiently or sleep for too long, and what we call a U-shaped relationship, are more likely to have a diagnosis of high blood pressure or hypertension, diabetes, or have a, a, a cardiovascular episode, so a heart attack, for example. Now, where it's a bit difficult is that we don't know whether these things are causal. That's one part of the issue, that. We don't actually know what all the pathways are, because Mm. if you think about, um, let's go with, say, sleep duration, amount of hours you sleep per night and type 2 diabetes, which is a very common link that's been found for a long time. Um, We know that people who sleep for too little, so that's normally under six or seven hours, they are more likely to have a diagnosis of diabetes when you follow them up for, say, 10, 15 years. But what we don't know is if it's the lack of sleep per se or there's something else on the causal pathway, which we would call a mediating factor, which is, in fact, sleep is linked to that and that is what's causing the diabetes. Because, of course, it's, it's a very good question because these outcomes that you've mentioned, they are vascular in nature hmm. and they they would allude to vascular damage in, in the brain and, and physiologically. Um, but what we do know is that reverse, if you reverse it slightly, people who have diabetes and hypertension, for example, um, they have vascular damage to their brain. So we we're we're doing a lot to disentangle the direction of these effects. The other problem is having multiple of these conditions and also whether they're causal and whether sleep itself, the lack of sleep itself is causing the problem, or it's something else on that pathway. And we the truth is that we don't really know. We don't really know. Um it could be an, a number of different things, but these methods that that we're using now um are somewhat easier than as you can imagine designing a randomized control trial to look at all of these yeah. things. It's a very, very complex question with um a very complicated answer.
0: I want you to take a second to process what Professor Garfield just said there. I think this is a point worth highlighting. These types of studies are really challenging to do. You know, when you have outcomes that are rare, those are much easier studies to conduct because the cause and effect are much clearer. Poor sleep is connected to conditions like diabetes and hypertension, but scientists aren't sure if it causes those things. In part, that's because sleep is universal. People may get more or less of it, but everyone sleeps, which makes controlling for all the other factors Professor Garfield just discussed very, very hard. But I think having said all that, no matter what, it's still clear that sleep and rest, more generally, is really important for us, and it can make us healthier. When we come back, though, a little cat nap, what about that? Could it do your brain good?
1: But what we did find that was really striking is that, quite strongly, habitual daytime napping seemed to be linked to total brain volume.
0: We'll be right back. We're back with Chasing Life and Professor Victoria Garfield, who, by the way, co-authored a study on napping that was published just this past June. And when I read it, it reminded me of some reporting that I had done on stress a while back. What I basically learned was that not all stress is bad. In fact, some stress is necessary. I mean, it's what fires you up to meet a deadline, to get out of bed, to study for an exam, right? What is harmful, though, is when it becomes constant and relentless. Stress floods your body with the hormone cortisol. Again, you need some of this, but it also puts your body in fight-or-flight mode. It's good if you're trying to make a deadline or being chased by a saber-toothed tiger. But constantly living in that high-alert state, well, that wreaks havoc on the body. It's the constant, relentless nature of it. So sleep can be one of the only times we really get the chance to disconnect and de-stress. And that alone is hugely beneficial to our bodies and our brains. Also, it's a bit of a double whammy. Because when you don't get a good night's sleep you even have higher cortisol levels the next day. So getting your Zs is another way to keep the cortisol levels in balance. And even though I thrive on stress, I need that stress to do the sort of work that I do, I realize now more than ever, there has to be this balance. There has to be these breaks. You can get those breaks in all sorts of different ways. But again, coming back to rest, coming back to sleep, it's one of the most reliable ways to actually break the cycle of stress, and napping can also be a way to give our brain a sort of reset. This is what Professor Garfield's study helped confirm scientifically.
1: So this idea came from um, essentially there's there's a bunch of experimental American uh, studies, and what they've what they looked at was essentially whether people who napped versus didn't nap um, had any cognitive benefits. And these studies showed, um, using quite a nice experimental design, that it looked like people who took a nap that was fairly long, actually, um, did have better cognitive function. So their thinking skills improved, whether that be things like uh, how quickly you process things, um, your memory Um, you know, those sorts of thinking skills that we need all day long, essentially. And reaction time is a very important one as well that we use, you know, when we're driving, when we're, we're, we're making decisions. So we took our study a step further because we wanted to look at whether daytime napping would have any effect um, on essentially some of these important markers that you get once you segment the brain after having uh, undergone an MRI scan because some of these are hallmarks of of dementia. So the biggest takeaway is that um, we found a a very clear effect of habitual daytime napping, so having a regular daytime nap on the total size of the brain, so what we call total brain volume as captured with a brain scan. The the effect size that we found was about 15 cubic centimetres, um, which, again, for, for people's understanding, people ask, well, what does that mean? Um, we, we calculated that with previous studies to equate to about three to six and a half years of ageing. So quite a big uh, thing in terms of the age of the brain. And we think that's um, really important because a lower total brain volume is linked to certain diseases, Um, earlier mortality, and higher stress levels.
0: I want to highlight that particular point again. The study found that people who had regular naps saw an objective difference in brain size compared to those who didn't. Now, we don't know what that change in brain size really means, but there is an objective difference in the brain between those people who nap and those who don't. This is also important because we know that as we age, our brains shrink and that can be associated with cognitive decline. So what Garfield is saying is that the study found that regular nappers had a difference in brain volume that was equal to about three to six and a half years of aging. And what she's fundamentally saying is that people who napped regularly in many ways had younger brains than those who didn't.
1: I think from the research that we've been doing, and I've been doing that for 10 years, duration of sleep at night... And quality of sleep at night, uh, my opinion is that it can't be replaced, or you can't make up for it with a nap in the day. And that's partly because also, um, you know, you you feel that sleep pressure, you feel that pressure to sleep at night because that's when we're culturally and societally supposed to be sleeping, um, and when everybody else is asleep. Right. So um, that's when you you know, you know begin to feel tired. If you have a standard sort of day of eight to five, nine to six, whatever you're doing, then come the evening, once you've eaten and you've done all your evening activities that most of us do, um, you do feel that sleep pressure and that's due to the chemicals in the brain telling you it's now getting to that time, it's dark outside and everybody else is going to be thinking about sleeping. So um, I don't believe that a daytime nap can make up for it. It can help.
0: Is there a right length of a nap, and and is it is it possible to sleep or nap too much?
1: The previous studies, a lot of them have looked at cognitive function, so thinking skills, and some of them have recommended that to get the benefits, you want to be sleeping for one to two hours, having a nap for one to two hours. Um, now, I think that's a bit problematic because... We need to think about what samples those studies were looking at, for example, and if they were saying university students or a particular population, which might not be wholly general, generalizable to the population. We need to be careful about that. Um, but I would say one of the issues that that people say often: if you sleep for too long in the day, is you wake up feeling groggy, you wake up feeling yeah. worse, and that's because you've gone into deep sleep. You your your you're pre- your brain is preparing you know, and, and mimicking that sleep at night and thinks you're now ready to sleep for the rest of the day. So in order to avoid that, we've been quite conservative and said, well, maybe something up to about 30 minutes. If, you, if it takes you 20 to fall asleep, maybe go, you know, maybe maybe 40, but not too long. Because I think, you know, anecdotally and observationally, I don't think it's probably beneficial to sleep for two hours in a day.
0: I, I'm, I'm getting quite granular here because I'm fascinated by this professor. I'm probably going to incorporate some of this into my life. But uh, along those same lines, is there an optimal time of day then to nap?
1: Very, very good question. Again, um, there's some evidence to suggest that the post-lunch period, again, for people we're talking, you know, vaguely a, a nine-to-five type day, your average person, of course, there are people working all all sorts of hours. There's evidence that the post-lunch period to take a nap is is a good time to do it. Um, So it could be that, for example, you know, because people have said, oh, but what if my employer doesn't allow it or I can't do it? If you have an hour for lunch, which again, thinking about resting, most of us should do, not all of us do. But if you have half an hour where you're having your nap or 20 minutes and then you eat and then you're kind of you have a few minutes and you're ready, ready to go again.
0: Curious, are, are, are you a napper? I mean, did, did you <laughs> begin napping as a result of your own, your own research?
1: So very, very um, ironically, I'm not a napper. I've been asked this many times now, and it doesn't sound great, I suppose. But I, in the, in the you know uh, business of being honest, I am more likely to probably do some exercise than nap or go for a walk. But it may be something that as I get older, I think about a bit more.
0: Yeah, yeah when you, when you get to be like my age you know and much older in early fifties perhaps um, you know I have to tell you um my my mom is is, is an extraordinary person she's in her early eighties now, and I've been talking to her a lot more about um, things like this and just aging in general. A comment she made to me um, professor, was that a change of activity can be a form of rest and now. She's not, a, she's not a psychologist, not a brain scientist like, like you or, or me, but I thought that was such an interesting thing. And you sort of alluded to this a couple of times. I've noticed the word that you use is rest, not necessarily just sleep. Mm-hmm. And you even just said, I, you know, you might go for a walk instead of taking a nap. And I think it, it really does raise this question about rest and its relationship to brain health and how you define rest Specifically, I mean, are there other things that we can do that maybe even seemingly are counterintuitive things to do to rest our brains?
1: Absolutely. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Your mum has a very, very good point. I will always choose to take a break and have a rest, and uh, as in, rest my brain. That doesn't mean literally lying down or going to sleep by doing something which is completely unrelated to my work activities something that, you know, doesn't, that gives my brain that rest and my brain is not engaged in the same way. Of course, our subconscious is always working in the background and telling us you need to do that, you need to do this. Um, But it's quite cool because you could have a eureka moment for a piece of research that we're doing, or you might come up with something that you want to do on your podcast, someone you want to speak to. Um, I do things like housework, cleaning. Um, I phone my mum and we talk about you know, gossip, what's going on with the family in Uruguay. Um, I might phone my partner, he's a chef, so he, you know, I might phone him on my lunch break and just ask how his day's going and we talk about something else that's not work. Um, again, I might also put on a 20-minute a TV show, which is relaxing while I'm having my lunch and is not a documentary about brains or data or epidemiology. So I think... <laughs> I, People here in the UK do a lot of gardening. I don't know if you know that. It's very popular to do lots and lots of gardening. So absolutely, it's a very individual thing. And we can only recommend to the population, you know, what we see in the evidence. So we know that napping seems to be beneficial for the brain. But if there are other things that make you feel good and give you that rest, by all means, you know, clean the kitchen or cook a meal or call your mum or do, you know, do some Plants, or, or you know, go go into the woods, or go for a run. What, whatever works for you, that I think, is about doing a different activity, something that you're you're removing yourself from from whatever you were doing before.
0: Well, I'll have to phone my mom and tell her that Professor <laughs> Garfield agrees with her. One final question here, and it, it, this may be a short answer, but we talk a lot about sleep hygiene at night to get ready to go to sleep, keep a cool, dark room, turn off devices, do all those sorts of things. Sleep hygiene for a nap is it is it the same I mean or or, or do you think of it differently?
1: I would say probably quite similar. Um, you want to find somewhere you know as quiet as you can to take your nap take a break from your phone, your iPad, whatever, you you know, emails. That's the big one, I think, for everybody, emails all the time, um, WhatsApp messages, those sorts of things. So, yeah, I think quite similar. I think it can where it can be tricky, I suppose, is that if you're, people have asked me this, if we're wanting to persuade employers to have a space for people to nap, how would we go about that? And, of course, that's difficult if you're in the middle of a city, busy office, Um, But we do have, um, for example, where where I work at UCL, we have prayer rooms for people. We have um, rooms for uh, breastfeeding. So I think something similar where people can also nap and, and, and leave your devices behind and try to take that rest.
0: That was Victoria Garfield, a senior research fellow at the Medical Research Council Unit for Lifelong Health and Aging and a professor at University College London. I learned a lot from her. Let's all agree there is no shame in a nap. We can start there. It's even good for your brain. It can increase the volume of your brain and decrease your risk of certain diseases. But also, as you heard, napping is not going to make up for bad sleep habits, so you still need to get your seven to nine hours every night. Remember what Professor Garfield and my mom said, that rest is important, yes, but that rest doesn't necessarily have to be a nap either. There are other ways of giving our brains a rest from the constant stream of information that we're interacting with. Take a walk, go for a run, put your work down, close your eyes, maybe meditate, do something that gives your brain that well-needed rest. Next week, you might say it's the opposite of the rested brain, the caffeinated brain. I highly recommend getting off caffeine if only to have that experience of getting back on caffeine. If you have doubts that it's a powerful psychoactive drug, they will go away. Thanks for listening. Chasing Life is a production of CNN Audio. Our podcast is produced by Aaron Mathewson, Madeline Thompson, David Rind, Xavier Lopez, and Grace Walker. Our senior producer and showrunner is Felicia Patinkin. Andrea Kane is our medical writer and Tommy Bazarian is our engineer. Dan DeJula is our technical director and the executive producer of CNN Audio is Steve Lichtai. Special thanks to Ben Tinker, Amanda Seeley, and Nadia Kunang of CNN Health.